Kia ora. Thomas Coughlin, good to see you here in the Parliamentary Press Gallery for our weekly hoon around the political economy. It's uh, really good to see you. I'd say uh, Happy New Year and welcome all, welcome back, but it doesn't really feel like that as a New Year thing, does it? No, I, 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 every year I wonder what the statute of limitations is on, on New Year, and I, I tend to go for the first time I see someone in the New Year, but then I, I was told that that was ridiculous when I started saying it in February, and so now I've, I've decided it's about January. Is you, the cutoff point is the end of January, so it is nice to see everyone back for the first time in the new year, although you cannot say that it's a happy new year. Whether or not it will be a happy year remains to be seen. Yeah, uh, because we've, we've been going for a couple of weeks now, you know, out there covering what the politicians are saying, and we're starting to get some data on what the economy is doing, some decisions here and there. And we've got Parliament restarting next week, immediately after Waitangi Day. That's really the sort of beginning of the um, political year. Uh, but this week, everyone's been prepping with a couple of big pieces of uh, news, really setting up the architecture for the year ahead mm. and responding to how the summer has gone politically and uh, more widely with uh, Omicron. The big news this week is the um, five-step plan to reopen the economy. Uh, uh, what do you think was um, in front of the cabinet and the PM this week when they had to make that call? Do we go ahead with the end of February plan to bring back New Zealanders from Australia? Or do we delay it? Uh, because we may be right at the peak or just before the peak when the end of February opens up. Yeah, it's still quite a gutsy move, right? Like, like they've, they've made a very strong case for why you wouldn't just open the border just because you're getting COVID cases in the community. I think they made that case quite, um, quite cogently uh, during the Delta outbreak. You know, when we when we were getting lots of Delta cases in Auckland and, and it looked like elimination was dead, um, you could have reasonably reasonably said, like, look, you know, vaccination's okay. Um, let's just put a date on this and maybe you know December and go for broke. Um, but they have made a, a good case for, for fanning the flames, and, and um, Chris Hipkins had a number, um, a number which has escaped me about the number of, of, of cases that opening the border would see every week, even if you had, um, even if you had, uh, uh, um, even if you had pre-departure testing, you'd still people would slip through, so you're going to be seeding cases. And I think you've seen the merits of that with the Omicron outbreak actually so far. The, the, the case growth has been slower than the model has predicted. It's been much slower than overseas. And I think that's probably because we're actually, we've got an Omicron outbreak in one of the only countries with the border still closed. So it's, you know, we had a couple of Omicron cases and they've sort of grown into an outbreak. Even, so. even listening to that, I'm holding on to all sorts of wood. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. And we're, gonna, we're living in, the, in the, um, the best worst case scenarios, I suppose. So I think they've, they've made a decent case for that. It's interesting, um, it, is, it is interesting that they've decided to sort of just put a date in it and, and, and run with it. I think they've probably made the right, like, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see a lot of commentary out there, of people saying, oh, you know, can we trust the government um, to stick to its word this time with the, with the border reopening dates? And I, I think they've made it pretty clear that they will open the border this time around. They can't. I've noticed there's a hardening of the mood on that yeah. uh, because we've obviously had the one delay back mm. just before Christmas. It was going to be the middle of January. Then it was delayed to the end of February. But I, I, I sense just the national mood, and if you look at polls as mm. one way to, to measure the national mood, uh, a lot of people are over it. Let's just get it over and done with. Uh, you're hearing stories in MIQ about um, people infecting the rest oh. of their family to avoid oh. an extra line in <laughs> MIQ. Oh, that's just awful, that stuff. 
Yeah, no, so I, I sense that it's going to go ahead at the end of uh, Feb. And then uh, March 13, uh, New Zealanders will come back from the rest of the world. And we start to see some migrant workers coming in. I, I thought the announcements this week about a lowering of the threshold for uh, the median wage. Previously, you had to be earning more than two times the median wage to get one of these special it's skill one bases. One and a half now. One and a half, and the government said that could bring in an extra 10 to 20,000 workers. How much of a factor is it, the, the very tight labour market, concerns about wage inflation, lots of employers saying we can't get skilled or unskilled staff. How much of a factor is the government um, thinking about that when they made the decision? Um, well, I'd be interested to see because Chris Farfoy, in, in some remarks that were made at that um, at that event, Chris Farfoy said that the more details around the immigration reset, which they're now calling a re something, I think they have changed the name on the reset to something else. There's a, there's a new, softer name. I think. Is it a twist? It's is, a, it, yeah, is it a? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've drawn a blank, um, but it's been given a name uh, anyway. Uh, the 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 reimagining of, of New Zealand's sort of migration policy um, would be soon, so we'll get we'll, we will get um, a, a picture on, on that. And I think yeah, I, I think Labor's been caught by surprise in the last six months about by the cost of living thing. It's interesting that the Reserve Bank actually picked up on on the inflationary pressures in the economy and um, in the New Zealand economy and the global economy much earlier than other central banks did. Um, so credit to the Reserve Bank because I think they were the first to sort of indicate they'd be they'd be tightening t- relatively quickly while the Australians and the Europeans. Well, maybe they were just the first to get it wrong. The first to get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and um, and they were sort of you know at, at one point the Australians were saying they weren't going to tighten for another couple of years and now. You know, everyone's on board with the tightening, um, because the inflation is here, and it looks like inflation's here to stay for a little while, not f- perhaps for forever. And I think, um, I think Labor, Labor knows that, like, if you go into, when you look at the kind of political economy of this year, you've got a housing crisis which isn't going away, and which you can't really make better um, without doing something that Labor doesn't want to do, which is to crash it. Um, you've got wages which aren't growing um, fast enough. You've got inflation everywhere. Um, and then you've got all of these other things which the Labour does want to do, but you know, are politically difficult, which is addressing climate change, which does add cost to business. You've got the social unemployment, uh, the unemployment um, insurance scheme, which is going to add cost to business and um, and employment. Like everything that is happening this year is going to make life more difficult and expensive for people. And there's actually nothing going on which is going to make life cheaper for people, um, which is a problem. Um, so to your point, Bernard, I think. I think what one of the things that, that the government is trying to do is to look at ways of, of urgently addressing the, these things so that when people go into 2023, they're feeling good about themselves and good about the economy. So yeah, bring, bring Labour in to address um, the cost of, uh, of, of food. Um, like it is ridiculous at the moment, we're in summer, and f- you know, at this point in time, this is the season when fruit uh, and vegetable prices crash, as they should, it's summer. They don't. They haven't. Vegetable prices are much the same now as they were a few months ago. Um, different vegetables, obviously, but you know. We just we just have to eat avocados. Yeah. Morning, <laughs> lunch, <laughs> avocados dinner. are incredibly immune to inflation, so they, they haven't really. Ch- this is something I've, I've noticed. They're not. They're not. Kind well, they're of actually quite cheap at the moment because yeah. a lot of the uh, Mexican restaurants <laughs> are not doing any guacamole. True. So the True. avocados, which haven't been easily able to be exported, yeah, have been yeah. dumped into the supermarkets. So you get the the two for three dollar deal and all that. Sort uh, well, of thing. it's interesting. Businesses. I've um, we've got a 
pub in our, in our neighbourhood, and they've, they sort of put their prices up. Twenty-four dollar pub hamburger, which I think for you know, love a pub, love you know, it's great, but that for a pub hamburger, very expensive. So, you know, as a as a sort of economic anecdote, I've changed my consumption to go to the fish and chip shop next door, which is a nine dollar burger, which I can then eat on the beach. Which is fantastic. So. There you go. But anyway, so I this think... This is Wellington. You can tell we're in Wellington that the burger costs $24. Yeah, I know. Like, what? Um, but the, yeah, so, so I, to your point, I think, I think the government is, you know, that, that they are um, they're very, they're very good at sensing the public mood, but they will be thinking like, cripes, you know, we've got an economy now that isn't working for working people. Uh, it's everything is going wrong, um, apart from unemployment, obviously. Everyone's got a job, but apart from that, everything's going wrong. Um, and they need to urgently look at ways of addressing it, which is why I'm, I'm staggered that David Clark has sort of um, kicked back the, the, the progress on the supermarket market study stuff has sort of been delayed. Uh, tell us about that. Uh, it's um, I gosh, need to double check what has happened, but I think they've they've, they've stalled on, on following through on some of the recommendations for the market study. So because ah, um, I had a look at the um, various pieces of inflation that's come through in the last couple of years. And the biggest chunk of it is fuel prices, mm. where we know the fuel companies have increased their profit margins by about 10 cents a litre mm. in the last two years. Food and supermarkets. Now, obviously, food prices have gone up globally, in part because oil prices have gone up. They're quite closely linked. Um, you do wonder if they feed their cows uh, oil in America. <laughs> <laughs> There's an element of that. Uh, so supermarkets, the fuel companies, and the other big um, driver of inflation uh, has been building materials, where yeah. costs of construction are up 20%. And it's not just wages, it's actually the stuff that Fletcher Building and Carters are putting out. So uh, overseas, there's a lot more discussion about monopoly power, duopoly power as one of the reasons for this inflation spike that we've had go through. With um, the big change over the last 20 or 30 years is the increasing concentration of, uh, of market power in some markets. And in New Zealand, we've got duopolies in, in groceries, in uh, pretty much in fuel, and definitely in building materials. Uh, so that's interesting if um, the government has soft-pedaled on the supermarkets thing because uh, it used to be quite a hot topic. And uh, maybe it's because Shane Jones is not on the, on the scene. So actually, to the point about the, super, the market, so I've just checked that. So there is a speculation that it might be delayed, but it has not been confirmed as being delayed yet. Um, so the final recommendations are due back in March. So we can, you know, something to, um, something to read uh, through from our sick beds. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, there is yeah. So so I I would um, so we just if, if, speculation it could be delayed. If it is delayed, well, crikey. Um, but if it, if it isn't, then I would expect the government to sort of push on with that because I think if you're looking to to improve people's lives, um, making it cheaper to eat is probably a good place to start. Yeah, rents is obviously a big driver in the inflation as well. And there's been some debate in the last couple of weeks that the government is looking at some form of rent control or or an attempt to do something about the rent inflation. Uh, we've seen a report t today that Porter Williams has asked for housing and urban development to come back with some options. Not that they're obviously very keen on the idea of rent control, it's all very 1982, but, <laughs> uh, 
but um, something's brewing and are obviously really concerned about it. Yes, to, to that I was just, um, I've just finished the Michael Bassett history of the, the um, you know, a, a fourth Labour government and, and you know, I mean they, they covered off some of that, that rent control period and, and unfortunately we were once they lifted the rent controls, surprise, surprise, rent spiked. So I'm not sure whether, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've always been on the fence on, on rent controls. They seem, they seem like a very humane and, you know, uh, decent kind of policy tool to to stop the rampant price gouging and one of the most kind of uh, feudal and dysfunctional parts of the economy, then again, it's also quite difficult to see um, areas where they've worked to both stimulate the construction of new rental properties and investment in rentals and, and, and then, you know, actually it's difficult to find places where they've worked to, to, to long-term hold rent stable because of when, whenever the rent controls are taken off, then yes. disaster strikes. And so you end up with these stories like in New York and Berlin where people scour the obituary pages and hunt down the um, rent control departments yeah. as, they come, as they come free. Well, you can find some great ones, right? That's rent con- was a rent control apartment overlooking Central Park? Is, you know, it's sort of the, the dream. You hear, yes. you hear stories about these things existing. Yeah. But um, you do, it's hard to be a you know, neoliberal, keep your dirty hands off my market, <laughs> when, when um, there's not a lot of elasticity in supply in the New Zealand market. You sort of wonder whether prices send any signals at all <laughs> to get stuff uh, built. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's sort of staggering. Like, I mean, Wellington's a classic example of this. Actually, I think in Auckland, um, we've seen sort of record building concerns for some time. But Wellington doesn't seems to be lagging behind. And even you know, Wellington has a terrible housing crisis. We've just seen, um, you know, the, the latest. It's always around this time of year, right? So the the student, the students um, come to Wellington look for um, look for rentals and can't find. In them. fact, we're, we're in a nice padded studio yeah. here in Parliament. I'm not surprised there's not a few members of the yeah. press gallery yeah. lying down. <laughs> well, it's nearly <laughs> come to that point, right? It's incredible. Poor Aaron. So, um, uh, you know, there's a piece on on the internet yeah. you can read if you're interested about a you know member of the press gallery struggling to find a place. And you know, it's not. Um, I think it's probably where the the, the politics, politics of it are getting quite interesting. Is that it's not really a story of. Um, it's, it's becoming a kind of middle-class um, uh, voter issue now too, and it has been in the last sort of five, even ten years. Particularly in Wellington, where rents are, you know, five, six hundred dollars for a yeah. two, three-bedroomed place, yeah. uh, or you know, one bedroom in a, a pretty shoddy flat for yeah. two, three hundred dollars, and. You do wonder when the borders open, we're all thinking there's going to be this flood of New Zealanders coming home and so many Love Actually moments at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, all wearing masks, of course, but um, will there be a lot of New Zealanders leave, particularly the young ones who have uh, um, hankering after a good OE? Well, I think one of the, um, one of the things I find really interesting about the New Zealand um, the way that New Zealand and Australian property markets interact is like the property prices in Australia are nuts. You know, they're, they're crazy, not as crazy as us, um, but they're still pretty nuts. Um, re- but rents there are, um, um, aren't too bad. They're actually really, really good. And I think what um, a lot of New Zealanders who look over the ditch um, and think, you know, they'll never do it because actually, you know, property prices in Australia are, ju- are just as bad as they are here. They fail to they fail to see that actually the, the, what, what New Zealanders do when they go over to Australia is that they go over there, rent, Build up a deposit and come back and buy here, which further rorts of New Zealand market because you've got a whole lot of people with who are earning more money uh, in a better currency um, who come back with a massive deposit and then prices go up again. Um, so I would 
I mean, uh, average rents in Melbourne, you know, fantastic city, um, income super, super high, um, are really low. They're, they're, they're lower, they're, they're sort of at Christchurch levels, you know. Um, and um, uh, so if, once the waters are open, it's, it's only a three hour flight away. It's, it's super easy to do. Um, yeah, absolutely, there'll be a, I would, I would, I would say very strongly there'll, there'll be a rain drain, and that, that, that suits no one. Uh, it suits, it doesn't suit New Zealanders trapped here um, to have Australian money um, ploughed into the housing market. Uh, it doesn't suit the New Zealanders who leave, who would probably rather just stay here with their families um, and live in a, a country which, in which they could afford to buy housing, you know. But it is, it's a very, it, it is a massive, um, it's a massive issue for everyone. I was actually just, I was looking at, um, again in Wellington, Tim Brown has sort of said he might be interested in, you know, ex mm. Um, and, and, and running for uh, council here. And he mentioned when he declared like the cost of housing and with his own sort of family situation, and you're like, gosh, when, when you know, the, the higher ups in Morrison and Co and Infratel are sort of saying, I, you know, this housing issue is pretty serious. You're like, wow. You know. It'd be nice if they invested <laughs> several billion dollars in apartments in, in Wellington. I well, no, it would be, it'd be great. I, I, I mean, there is some stuff being built up in Victoria Street, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a long time coming. Yeah. So um, inflation's an issue. Is the opposition really capital on this because this is just made to measure to put the boot into the government cost of living you know pocket back pocket politics should be oh flying. yeah well it's, it's one of those things where you, like La I think Labour's definitely been caught by surprise on inflation and and I think probably like like fair enough we haven't seen inflation in, the, in New Zealand on this scale since we gave the Reserve Bank um, independence and um, you know so uh, I'm not surprised that they didn't think that this would happen. Um, but lab all of Labor's kind of policy schedule is all about. Uh, it, well, it's not. They're not thinking about inflation clearly. Like, like they they certainly would not have announced this um, social unemployment um, scheme, insurance scheme, had they been thinking about inflation. Um, so, so it's clearly off their radar. Uh, yes, I mean, you know, one of the reasons there you see inflation is is, um, is excessive government spending leading to too much demand. Uh, there is obviously a lot of government spending. So the political debate will be attributing blame, and I think it's it's quite, it's increasingly well, it's, it's, it is quite it is quite difficult to 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 do that when when so much um, so much inflation uh, is coming from overseas forces. Although there is there is some. Uh, um, there has been some data published recently that's, that, that does um, point towards uh, the fact that there are domestic drives of inflation as well, one of which is the government. So, you know, but I think that'll be the debate that plays out over the next year, which is... And there is an interesting costs. correlation between money supply and inflation. And there has been quite an increase of money supply lately. Um, uh, yes, just yeah, about yeah. 50 odd billion yeah. dollars. So this week has also been a big week for the opposition. They've had their uh, first caucus retreat under uh, new leader Christopher Luxon. You interviewed him, and um, he used some some fancy corporate language to talk about the plans. Uh, what did What did you think? Yeah, well, I, I went um, I went down to Queenstown to have a look at the caucus retreat. I've got to say, I would I I'm, I it'll be interesting to see what, what what voters think of this because I must say the corporate jargon turns me cold <laughs> but then again how do you feel as a stakeholder, uh, as a stakeholder? <laughs> I find um it's, it's funny I think um I think journalists are probably pr are pretty immune to that kind of corporate ease we we tend to um speak fairly plainly um sometimes to our detriment um and we swear a lot and the, and corporates corporates tend to um do the opposite um uh, and uh, yes yeah, so I think he will 
I think I think he I think he's struggling to actually dial it down like that. I think the National Party is actually aware that that corporate language is off-putting and a bit. Maybe he needs weird. to have um, dialing down the corporate language is one of his KPIs. As one of his KPIs. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't joke. <laughs> well, I thought well, it was interesting that you know he's talking about conduct and culture and being a new nicer National Party, and then at this, on the six o'clock news he he joked that Chris Bishop was looked like a whale when he was swimming, and and you know sort of. Uh, made a very untoward joke that, um, towards Chris Bishop and you're sort of thinking, you know, m- maybe you've got to look at yourself in the mirror here a wee bit when you're talking about the conduct and culture and, and tone is and Tone, is, tone is a thing that politicians are supposed to get just right. Oh, yeah. And it's hard. Yeah, it is, it is hard. And, and I think that, like this, this year you've actually seen just in Radun get the tone wrong a wee bit. I think sort of people are frustrated with the sort of almost excessive empathy that she puts out there in the way that people initially loved John Key's kind of everyday bloke sort of shtick and then eventually tired of that and got really pissed off with it actually. You can see that, you know, Jacinda Ardern is doing the same thing she's been doing for four years, but people are getting increasingly sick of it. Um, But, you know, you look at Jacinda Ardern and she gets the tone right like nine times out of ten and, you know, Luxton gets the tone right, you know, like six times out of ten and the difference is actually quite profound because he does put his foot in it like an alarming amount of times. But um, still early days, still early and the days. polls seem to show something of a resurgence. Uh, the One News Cantor poll out this week showed National up at 32, uh, up four, although three of that seemed to come from ACT, and Labor down one from 41 to 40. Effectively, the centre-left, centre-right split, uh, the gap has dropped from nine points mm. to six. six yeah. And the Roy Morgan poll um, really show, <laughs> shows a, a very tight race. Uh, yeah, I'm never sure about the Roy Morgan poll, I've got to mm. say, I'm a wee bit. <laughs> people, um, people always tweet me saying, why are you censoring the Roy Morgan poll? You know, when, when it would show my team in government, we, we don't really tend to, to, to run it because it um, can be spit all over the place. But, but there has been a, a tightening yeah. of the numbers. Um, Impossible the, the to argue there has been a tightening, yeah. And uh, do you think that the preferred PM stuff is interesting as well? Because the the PM is not quite so preferred anymore. And Christopher Luxon, obviously, yeah. now that uh, he's more than just an aspiring opposition leader, he's um, one election away from being prime minister, um, up. Uh, do you think that um, that gap is now something that's relevant? I do. I think there's a, there's a lot of complacency on the left about those numbers because you, you look at the, the, I mean, the most important number is the party number, and the party number is really good. Six-point gap is fine, although a three-point swing away from the left to the right would you know, have you level pegging, although to party Māori I'd, I'd say we'll probably win Wairiki and I would say that if push came to shove they'd probably back um, a, a left-wing government, um, although, you know, then if you're National Act, you could say, well, to party Māori Green, Labour, three-headed Hydra is pretty good, pretty good kind of um, formulation to run a scare campaign against the government on if you wanted to. Um, but, but yeah, certainly, like, it's really close. Um, and I think yeah, the, the left is somewhat complacent about the decent, the, the, the close but decent numbers on the um, party vote stuff. Uh, PM and... Um, and uh, favourability and approval tend to be leading indicators, um, and they are, they are. Well, Christopher Luxon has his net approval has overtaken Jacinda Ardern. Just um, do you buy that net approval stuff? 
It's American. It's very well. It's 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 hard because it's very American. But you're also because like even the, the Americans American. only go for approvals or disapprovals. Disapprovals and not don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you see, even then, Christopher Luxon is twice. Uh, sorry, Jacinda Ardern is twice as disliked as Christopher Luxon. Nearly, she's I think he's about twenty points, and she's thirty-seven. And the, um, the taxpayers' union does does um, favorability of of uh, you know more than just the two um, leaders. And they found that in December, Jacinda Ardern wasn't even the most favoured minister in her own government. Um, she, her net favourables are below Grant Robertson. So in December, in the December poll, she was behind Robertson and Luxon as the third, third most favoured MP in, in, in Parliament. So I think there's some, there's some interesting kind of, you know, it's, it's early days, right? The, the people vote with party vote. But, you know, we have a kind of increasingly presidential, it's the oldest take in the world, so we have increasingly presidential kind of politics. Um, so that kind of feeds into, into how people's party vote goes. But I'd say there's probably something there to watch that for the first time, what, what, what I'd say is sort of significant is that for the first time in any poll of any kind in two years, Labour lost. And that's significant. Could be a rogue, probably not though, because the, the um, approval, the Cantar approval poll matched up with the taxpayers, the Curia taxpayers union Curia poll, so you know, they tend to correlate. But I think it's sort of interesting that um, for the first time a public poll, they've lost something. Um, and now no one's going to get too excited because Labour has won everything in t- <laughs> the last two years. You know, party vote, preferred prime minister, economy, everything. But it's, it's, it, it does show that that for national like. There is something there that they can win on, um, so it does sort of suggest that that kind of COVID mania is possible, probably resetting or returning to some sense of normalcy. But you know, it's, it, it, it is inter- it is interesting how much less liked the prime minister is now. I think that's probably the, the takeaway: is that she is. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who's more liked um, if you go out on the street. Um, and who's you know, and, and what does it matter if someone's really disliked, as long as more people like them? Um, you yeah, know, people, people really didn't like Helen Clark, but they elected it three times. Yeah, but it's it's, it's nevertheless like there is something out there um, that shows a really significant amount of um, like thirty seven percent disliking the prime minister is quite high. Yeah, um, and all of her other ministers are quite disliked as well. Apart from Robertson, every minister in the government has a negative approval rating. All right, we'll keep an eye on that one, mm. although we're still uh, a good 18 months out from an election. Seven quarters, Bernard. Seven quarters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good, seven quarters. Love it. I, I hope I never have to hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> so we're coming up to um, the first week of Parliament. Uh, what do you think's going to set the agenda in the next two weeks? Um, putting aside Omicron, you know, there's, there's, uh, we've had the social insurance announcement uh, this week and we've had the reopening announcement. What sort of things might bubble up in the next couple of weeks in and around Parliament? Um, well, the triple CFA stuff, David Clark put a pretty short time frame on that, so he wants results back from that quite soon. Um, so I think I think that's possibly March. Um, I need to, to check the exact date, but I think that that, that will be agenda setting because that will be that's huge. Um, you, you know, uh, it has had some effect on lending the Reserve Bank data show that it was down two billion on the previous month. Yeah, but although not as much December as can be a bit weaker than November. Uh, my reading of it was that it's not quite the credit crunch that's that been painted yet. Yeah. But um, there's some lagging indicators, yeah. uh, and although we had some centric data this week, which appeared to show a, a lot more applications being rejected, 
There's also a lot of mortgage brokers who are putting in a lot more applications. Yeah. <laughs> you, you fail at one, you, of course, go to two or three more others. Yeah. And uh, I suspect that the banks themselves aren't unhappy about uh, things slowing down a bit, partly because just like everyone else, you know, they're short of staff too. Their mm. call centres are overloaded and a whole wave of mortgage applications going crashing through the system in the mid to late December period. Mm. Yeah, I'd quite like to say no as well and go off for a holiday. So we'll, we'll see. Also, frankly, banks make money by increasing lending. And uh, you'd have to think that uh, once they've worked out how triple CFA works, what the risks are, um, there, there has to be some room for the government to do some regulatory tweaks so that low-level uh, loan managers and banks don't get pinged yeah. if someone loses some money. It does seem like the sort of political issue that everyone is going to sort of like shake hands and walk away from with a nice sort of happy compromise because banks want to lend, um, but they probably don't want to lend to people who are going to um, you know, blow themselves up. Um, because that's a bad story as well, uh, when things turn, as they inevitably will, um, about the government, and the government wants to make sure that the housing market is sort of kept in check, but it also wants to make sure that, I mean, it's an impossibility, right? Like how do you make sure that banks only lend to first-home buyers and not everyone, <laughs> and not everyone else? <laughs> so, um, Particularly when first-home buyers are the ones with the... Massive mortgages. The big mortgages, yeah. the least equity, um, the most likelihood of, you know, getting pregnant. Yeah, uh, or whatever it is. Um, it's the yeah. It's it's the you, you're wanting the political imperative to, is to lend money to the people who the banks least want to lend money to. Yes, this is why in China the banks are all owned by the government, and the government tells them who to lend to. <laughs> um, but they also don't have the RMA in in China. Uh, and just just finally on that social insurance thing, we we've passed over it a couple of times, but there's some theories a big deal. You know, three and a half billion dollar a year. Tax hike, as National would describe it, which on the face of it creates a sort of a two-tiered welfare system, like a Koru Lounge welfare system for those people who are frankly older, more likely to have a salary, more likely to have assets, and um, going to collect an 80% payment if they're unemployed, as well as the dog. Or the pension, if they happen to be over yeah, the age so of 65. It's certainly a great way of bailing out the housing market because it does mean that if you get laid off, you can, um, you know, I mean, I guess if you've, if you've got a mortgage that big, you probably have some form of unemployment insurance anyway, but you should. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm um, there's a, I think there's a strong case to be made for, for the unemployment insurance. It's... Uh, but you do know, Thomas, yeah, what yeah. you're doing is you're paying... 1.78% of your salary, and you'll never be fired. And what will happen is the 56-year-old um, uh, man, because often the people who are on salaries, full-time jobs earning the high incomes are yeah. men, old men, um, gets sacked because um, th that's what happens to people in their 50s and 60s. And suddenly they're getting an 80% uh, of their salary. Effectively, well. I mean, this is the thing about insurance, particularly health insurance, is yeah. that it's a, it's a way to transfer risk, obviously, from young people who are mostly healthy to old people who are sick. And that works as long as everyone pays insurance for all of their lives and mm. you get a transfer of risk across time horizons. Um, but that's, and that works for an insurance system because, frankly, 
the rates of insurance aren't set by the recipients. Um, the problem here, as we've seen with um, super, is that the risk is that you end up with lots of young people paying for the insurance and year in, year out, the money goes to um, older men, basically, who have full-time salaried jobs. And then later on down the track, when we can't afford all this stuff, you change the rules <laughs> and the, the system changes. Yeah, although I guess, I mean, when you look at like something like ACC, we've, when we change the rules, we tend to change the rules to expand the rules to make them better. I think, have we, have we chopped coverage from ACC? Yeah, so under National, there was quite a bit of and these. And in the 90s when they tried to privatise it, yeah. right? And also the, 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 um, the levies. The levies can be used as a pseudo tax hike or tax cut. Yeah. And there is an argument that if you're going to have these sorts of hypothecated funds, which are still vulnerable to messing around from politicians like yeah. we see with um the um the la the the roading fund mm. uh, the sorry transport fund yeah just <laughs> yeah. slip. yeah um, um and you see i think is sort of yeah exactly mm. so th these hypothecated funds look good in theory uh, somehow separated from all the other stuff but in practice unless you've got a truly independent agency with a particular uh, target in mind, it does become something politicians can't help themselves from getting their hands on. If you wanted to deliver a tax cut, you just go in there and slash away at it and um, use the buffer of an ACC fund to rescue you. Yeah, well, it would be interesting if that were possible because I suppose you can't really, you know, how would you trim the eligibility to, to, to cut your costs? I suppose you'd cut out contractors and maybe you'd well, cut that's out the same. Um, People who are on yeah. um, part-time jobs. And, this, and, this and that would be a problem because then you would be sort of bailing out white-collar yeah. privilege contractor work versus... Yeah, particularly the self-employed as well. Um, yeah. Although that's open to abuse, you know. Suddenly you give yourself a really big salary and then stack, stack <laughs> yourself. <laughs> yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's some curly ones in this, yeah. which I think um, we'll have debate on, obviously. But I think it is vulnerable to the accusation that it is just quietly another big uh, wealth transfer from mm. young, healthy people to old men. Yeah, I mean, I think if, you, if you're going to come at it from the other direction of, sort of what, what is the alternative, and you can try it, and the Greens kind of made this point, um, Ricardo Menendez Marsh and his, um, his report, re reply to it, not, you know, not, not totally against it, but they're sort of saying, well, look, you know, the long-term unemployed need to have something too, so it does create a two-tier welfare system. Um, and yeah, like, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're, um, if you're permanently ill, uh, disabled, unable to work for whatever reason, um, you, you know, it's, it's not an income you can live on that you get from the government. And that is the problem with the ACC system at the moment. It's great if you have an accident, yeah. but if you've got a, a mental health issue or yeah. um, MS, you're in trouble. You're onto the, the health benefit, which is pretty awful. And yeah. um, this is one of the good reasons why you would have a income insurance scheme, because mm. the way it's been proposed, mm. it does include... Uh, long-term illness, illness and there's well, it's quite still a, only seven months yeah although the, and there is quite a discussion about mental health and mm. and it's been a, a rising issue mm. through COVID, obviously so i i think there's going to be some pretty hefty debate on this and uh we'll we'll see how it goes obviously national have said they'll 
kill it as soon as they got in. It's yeah, it was, quite a, it was quite a, like Luxon had a big day. Um, was it the big week this week? He said we'd kill, kill the um, social unemployment insurance scheme and then the next day he said Jacinda Ardern should resign if she changes the board reopening date. So he's feeling pretty, you know, Here he boisterous. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and he committed himself to um, extending the retirement age as well when he the did. OECD came yeah, in. Yeah, well, that, um, that was an incredible moment there because we, we, I, I um, I just sort of bailed up Simon Bridges in a pub at nine o'clock in the morning when they were having their stand-up on Tuesday and sort of said the OECD says this, you're still committed to it and he sort of like, you know, did that classic politician thing where he danced around it and said, well, it's the leader's decision, it's the leader's decision. We sort of thought, oh, you know, this is interesting this, because usually a party will just parrot the, the policy and they didn't. And, and, and then Simon, I saw Simon go over to Chris Luxon and said, uh, you know, by the way, the press gallery is just asking about this unemployment, uh, the, sorry, this, um, this super age thing because of the OECD. And so I thought, oh gosh, we've been, you know, he's been tipped off. And um, and and so, you know, Simon wouldn't wouldn't say what the policy was anymore. And then about an hour later after Chris Luxon's speech, we um, we got a stand up with him where he recommitted himself to the super age as, as originally saying, policy. But, but the language, you hear the language? For now. So he hasn't. Uh, it was. It was. Um, it was very much. He hasn't read the OECD report. He said or the OECD report obviously sides with Nationals' position, um, but but it, he was hedging his language. So it's not a. You know, he said he would take the policy to the election at this stage. Uh, so you know, he might not take the policy to the election. He's given himself room to to move out of it. So that was a. It was a very interesting sort of two hours where. For a while there, um, your finance spokesperson wasn't committing to the National Party policy, then the leader did, but hedged. So we're in a very interesting position on that. Because I think uh, the Nats um, are very conscious of this issue. John Key obviously put his flag down and said, never in my political lifetime, which yep. uh, Jacinda Ardern has used that, uh, I think, uh, in the whole capital gains tax debate as a way to squash debate, yeah. key squash debate on it. And Bill English, I think, was always uncomfortable with it. And when yeah. he became prime minister, that was one of his first, you know, policy changes as national leader. And I think he didn't do too bad at the election either. He it didn't. No, but I, I think that policy did have an impact. And it's quite a lightning rod for people who are older, particularly if yeah. they've been working in uh, manual jobs. And mm. obviously from a... Uh, it's a funny one, the old, old people won't be affected by it. <laughs> it no, only comes that's, in that's true. It's, uh, it's, but it's for Māori and Pacifica, it really is a, a, a deal breaker oh, because there's so many people. It's incredibly inequitable. Yeah. yeah. It's a real, you know, and, and this is like Chris Luxton's going, you know, it's his first Waitangi day as leader. Um, in a couple of days' time, and yeah, you can't like you, you've got to find some way of addressing the Maori Pacific issue if you're going to raise this. Uh, sorry, if you're going to raise the super Asia, there's no, there's no yeah. two ways about it. And and um, and y you know, I f wouldn't it be great if you could um, promise to, to close the um, to close the, the the discrepancy between people's um, the, the ethnic um, life expectancy. Because uh, that, that would be, you know, sure, okay, we'll have a, we'll raise the super age, but we'll do it by closing the um, life expectancy gap. But I don't think National's going to promise that because that would probably require an upending of the health system, which they're probably not all that. Um, yeah, it's, it's going it to be, be a, great if a, it wouldn't be great if someone promised that. It wouldn't surprise me if by the time we get to the 2023 election, he adopts the same policy uh, as Labour to clear clear the decks. Yeah, well, why why, why would you t why would you roll the dice on it? Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's a it's, tough one. No. It's actually interesting. Um, again, and there's these um, the the Curia polls, which are um, getting leaked fairly regularly now. The age breakdown is fascinating. The age breakdown in an individual poll is pretty unreliable because you, they do, I think, 40, under 40, 41 to 59, and then 60 and above. So you break it down to those three cohorts. The, the, the sample size makes the margin of error quite ropey. But the last two polls, and which if it becomes the, the data becomes more interesting and trendworthy if it's three or four polls. The last two polls have shown that National Act would be able to form a government if only people under 40 voted which is sort of an inversion of what you'd expect. And Labour's, Labour's way ahead in the over 60s. Um, so, you know, like I say, difficult to, to, difficult to say that, that this is a trend uh, that's happening right now, but it's something to keep an eye on, I think, in the next, there's a monthly poll, so we'll get, we'll get one um, in the next few weeks and, uh, and then in a month's time. So it's just something to keep, um, keep one's eye on in the next couple of months to see whether this actually is a trend. And it'll be interesting to see now that Chris Luxon has actually decided to start polling himself, whether he starts to do some quite specific polling on that under 40 age group. I, I personally don't think with his, his sort of um, Christian background and the, and the positions on abortion and, and um, you know, just the wider kind of social issues, I can't, can't really see him coming ahead uh, when they're under 40s that much. But it's nevertheless interesting that if this is actually a trend, and we're not saying it is yet, but if it is, it'd be a fascinating inversion mm. because of I think I think it's probably not the stuff around super, but definitely around housing. I'd say there's oh, yeah. young people are just as you would be right, Outraged. Like, yeah. just under a doing promises to fix the housing crisis. Instead, she gave two hundred thousand um, dollars to your grandparents. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> something. It's not kind, but it's, <laughs> it's something. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, we'll be, we'll come back to this uh, again and again. We hope to do it every week when Parliament's sitting. Uh, Thomas Coughlin, uh, the uh, uh, senior reporter and columnist for the New Zealand Herald and uh, has worked at Stuff and uh, Newsroom, uh, uh, partly when I was there as well. Um, thank you for, for doing this. I appreciate Pleasure it. Pleasure um, And we'll be back again in a week's time with another hoon around the political economy from the press gallery. I'm Bernard Hickey for The Kaka.